welcome to today's conversation in our Collaborative Transformation podcast series, Driving the Deal, Focus on Private Equity Investments in Healthcare and Life Sciences. My name is Chris Worling. I'm a transactions lawyer focused on healthcare and life science deals and serve as co-chair of McDermott's global private equity practice. Our top-ranked private equity practice helps some of the world's leading investors execute deals in the healthcare and life sciences sector. In this series, I'm excited to bring you perspectives from McDermott's healthcare private equity partners, clients, and business associates on the trends, challenges, and opportunities that they are seeing in the healthcare and life sciences industries. Today, we're joined by Frank Martin, who is vice president of the managed care division at Farragut Square Group. Frank and I are gonna talk about some of the changes facing payers in 2021 from the Biden administration's healthcare initiatives, the growth in value-based care, and how payers are helping providers adapt to value-based care, as well as how payers are dealing with the boom in telehealth. Frank, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Chris. Frank, so uh, give us a little bit about your background first. How did you uh, get into the role you're in with Farragut today? So Farragut needed someone with expertise in managed care, specifically for the managed care division within the organization. And they found me through, I guess, the way most people find people through search firms. But prior to that, I had been working as either at a director or VP level of network contracting and network administration for the payers themselves. So my background has always been in network development, network contracting, both on a fee-for-service level as well as a, a value-based level, as well as moving forward with trying to establish MSOs and IPAs, not only for the payers, but for the provider market as well. So Farragut and I sort of met at the right time under the right circumstances, and I've been with them for the last five years. So you really come at this from an operational perspective in helping payers on the ground build and develop networks. In my past life, yes. For what I'm currently doing at Farragut today, um, we really help our clients understand the payer process from the strategic contracting end to the reimbursement side to any operational issues they may encounter to any forward-looking strategies that the payers may have that may impact their potential assets in the future and how they could either mitigate those issues or how they can at least work with the payers to try to mitigate any of the issues that they're seeing in the payer community. So I mentioned the administration and their their rollout of their legislative healthcare priorities. You know, what are the top changes that are facing payers under the Biden administration? So I think that payers are concentrating at the moment at the delivery of the COVID-19 vaccine and how it's being administered by the administration. But they're also looking at other areas that the administration had brought up during the campaign and some of the nuances that the Biden administration is currently working on. So they are still very interested in how the administration is going to treat the potential for Medicare purchase on the exchanges. They're also looking at the potential of the Biden administration expanding tax credits 
for families so that there there may be more accessibility to uh, more generous plans. They're also very interested in how surprise billing may play out this year and what the impact of that will be, whether it'll be negative or positive. So they're, they're looking at various different scenarios. They also understand that right now the administration is simply trying to wrap its hands around the development and really the acquisition of the COVID vaccine and, and how to deploy it effectively and try to make sure that it is deployed as quickly as possible. So they don't believe that the administration will have a great deal of wiggle room around some of the other areas. That doesn't mean that they don't think it's they're going to discuss it. It simply means that for right now, the first year or two of the Biden administration, those are topics that are going to be talked about, but not necessarily implemented. So it sounds like some of these changes mean that payers will see, you know, a larger number of covered lives coming out of these initiatives. Is that right? They will. Well, remember that the Biden administration expanded the enrollment period for the ACA within the last couple of weeks, right? So the payers uh, welcome that simply because they've lost almost 9 million members because of COVID-19 and due to unemployment. And many of those those members wouldn't be able to stay on COBRA. So with the expansion of, of the ACA, they're hoping to move that member from the commercial product when they were employed to potentially the ACA product. So really, there wouldn't be such a huge net loss for the commercial membership. And the the potential for some additional tax incentives or tax credits for the member making it, making mem- allowing members to have more access to the ACA or to at least be able to, to apply for the ACA through the, the, the different credits that the Biden administration is offering also is favorable to the payers as well because it expands their membership. How should providers and investors in providers think about that shift. Those are big numbers you were talking about. Uh, Nine million losing their coverage under traditional plans. Uh, What's the impact of shifting those patients into ACA plans? Well, I think the biggest shift isn't so much that the network wouldn't be available. The question is, who are the payers that are participating the within the ACA under different states? What counties are being covered? And whether you're dealing with a payer that has been existing within that county throughout the last four years, or whether new payers are coming back in. So, for example, United, Aetna, Cigna, exited, Humana exited certain counties. I think that from the provider perspective, the question is, am I going to be able to get into these different networks if the payers decide to come back into these counties? And if I am, is it going to be markedly different than the services that I'm, pro- that I'm providing now? Either way, the existing payer in a county is potentially going to capture that overflow of members. So from the provider perspective, it would mean a bit more volume, but it wouldn't mean a great deal of disruption in the way that they're delivering service. From a payer perspective, if you've pulled out of a particular county, then it's a little bit more difficult because you have to evaluate, well, 
did I pull out of the county and did I terminate all my contracts, which means that I have to go up and literally lift a network from the ground up again? Did I leave my contracts dormant and are the providers as receptive to deal with me going forward? And do I now have, and now am I really approaching this at a disadvantage because the payers that did remain in those counties, have they captured all of the membership within those counties? And is there room for me to potentially come in as an, as an additional competitor? And generally with networks that the ACA plans are using, is there lower reimbursement than a non-ACA plan, just on average? Well, typically, one of the mistakes that the payers did in the very beginning was to use the commercial product line or the commercial network to deliver services to ACA members. That was a higher cost network than if they had used, say, their existing Medicare network with an amendment to the existing contract or the Medicaid network, and it sat on a Medicaid reimbursement fee schedule since the ACA really was an expansion of Medicaid within the states. So they should have been able to use the same fee schedule. If they continue to use the commercial fee schedule, then it is more expensive than using the Medicaid network. And what should investors expect from the Biden administration in terms of further expansion of these ACA plans after this year? Is that a priority of the administration to continue to grow enrollment in ACA plans? No, I, I think the Biden administration has made it very clear that it, it wants to continue ACA expansion, that it's looking to states that may not have participated in the ACA plans to begin to look at the potential for participating in the program itself and to cover as many of the uninsured or underinsured as possible through the ACA. So I think that investors should expect that the administration will continue to expand or try to expand coverage and try to really cement the ACA going forward within the U.S. healthcare system, but also modify the ACA where appropriate to better uh, service not only the provider, but the member as well. So investors should be looking at some changes to the way that the ACA is delivered, as well as some additional tax incentives for more members to join, plus more of a foothold in various counties. And I, I think that we're already seeing that as we start to look at the various counties in the U.S. Right now, there's only three states, Michigan, Alabama, and Alaska, that may only have one county where there's one participant providing service there. And participant, I mean payer. So I don't foresee that there would be, again, another withdrawal from the ACA market unless something drastically changes, like a verdict coming down negatively for California versus Texas. You can't really talk about payers without talking about value-based care and alternative payment models. In 2020, we saw a number of large transactions that involved Medicare Advantage-focused providers, and that provider model is continuing to grow. And a lot of the primary care investment interest that we see is driven by the continued growth of value-based care and ability to implement that on the provider side. Mm -hmm. How do you think that payers will approach value-based care in 2021, Frank? Well, I don't think that payers have shifted their view on the potential to 
implement value-based care. The, the problem has been the administration of value-based care and whether different practices could actually administer it. Where value-based care has been most successful has been in orthopedics, simply because of the nature of the services that an orthopedist provides. The other place where value-based care has been very effective has been in accountable care organizations. And you can also say that in PCMH, the services also lend itself to value-based care. The, the question then becomes, how do you get the either medium or large size groups that haven't invested in infrastructure and aren't really very familiar with either capitation or risk management, how do you bring them into the system to be able to participate in the value-based care system itself? And maybe the answer is that you start with Organizations that are very familiar with it, with administering Medicare Advantage patients or caring for Medicare Advantage patients and then moving them to a capitated value-based environment, perhaps maybe with, you know, upside risk only and mitigating what the, the potential downside risk is for that organization. So payers will more than likely try to ease different providers into value-based care. And then after a certain period of time, and we're not talking about years, we're talking about a couple of months with them really allowing them to build up their infrastructure and then really moving them to the different tier in value-based contracting for them to be successful in administering it. That's where, where we see payers m most active with providers is them sort of guiding them through the system to get them where they need to be in value-based care. There, there's no question that payers would want to see more value-based care contracts out there. I would caution you in, in saying one thing as well. Not every payer is equal when it comes to being able to administer value-based care or administer value-based care contracts. So they have a learning curve as well, and they have a lot of infrastructure to put into place before you know this hits a, a larger segment of the provider community. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little more there. That's fascinating as to how payers are working to transition providers to value-based care. I know it takes an enormous amount of kind of technology and ability to manage data for a provider to really be able to manage risk appropriately. How specifically are payers helping providers with that piece of this puzzle? Well, again, I think that they're easing providers into it, which is instead of moving them to full risk immediately or even, even global risk, they'll usually start off with the Medicare Advantage, allow specialty providers that are associated either with a PC group that's taking capitated risk or an IPA to carve out specialty providers and then carve out certain high cost procedures that the, the group may be performing to allow it to get comfortable, to allow it to build the infrastructure that they need and the reporting mechanisms that the payer can then work with going forward. So they'll ease them into the process as, as we had said a little bit earlier, but eventually the payer is going to insist that that provider move to up and downside risk in the value-based arena, right? So it depends on how 
well the provider adapts, how quickly they can begin to assess the population that they're servicing, and how well they've identified the various sentinel events within that population to mitigate any risk going forward, and how well and how effective their clinical management team is in identifying those patients, in acting quickly to really provide resources and care to that patient and how well the medical management staff is at assuring that the staff is acting appropriately within a particular time frame. Because what we're really talking about is capturing issues before they blow up to become larger, more expensive issues. So they're really helping those providers take baby steps towards risk-based care. That makes a lot of sense. Right. Oh. So telehealth reimbursement parity, that's been another big discussion as we hopefully accelerate out of this pandemic here. How do you think that payers will handle telehealth as we you know, start to transition back to in-person care in 2021? So I think that we can say that telehealth has already proved its thesis. From an operational perspective, we saw that payers could lift up this network and deliver it very quickly, especially during a pandemic. We knew that telehealth was effective in different specialties, predominantly in behavioral health, and how well it was was able to be delivered for that particular specialty. The question now becomes, you know, how do payers look at telehealth going forward? I think that the expectation that telehealth will replace the face-to-face visit is a non-starter. Um, are going to insist that providers have a face-to-face visit before they will allow the, the telehealth benefit to really take hold going forward. And we've already seen payers adjust their benefits to require that, that there be a face-to-face visit before they will allow payment for telehealth. And why, why is that? Just curious. Well, there are two things. Telehealth has proven the operational aspects of the delivery of service, right? It can be done. The question then becomes, well, now let's look at the quality of service that's being provided, the efficacy of the services that are also being provided, and the consistency of the services that are being provided. And I think that the jury and most of the payers that we've spoken to so far have basically said that they are still looking at the data for that. They know that one, telehealth can be easily abused by providers, but that also that they haven't seen an increase in the quality of services that are being delivered to the patient, but they also don't know if that quality is going to be maintained throughout the development of telehealth through different specialties. They're fine with telehealth as a wrap for primary care. When you start looking at different specialties that are also can provide telehealth services, the, the, the line for consistency and quality becomes a bit more blurry. So I think until the payers feel comfortable with the level of quality that's being delivered, they're not going to fully embrace the use of telehealth predominantly to deliver healthcare services. And are payers studying the different costs that a provider experiences when they're doing a telehealth visit versus an in-person visit? 
I think that they are currently looking at the different networks that are out there, whether they those telehealth providers cross state lines, whether they are only providing telehealth and there are no physical locations, what the cost implications are there, whether there's any specific legislation that requires them, regardless of the type of provider, whether a satellite provider or an office-based provider is delivering telehealth. Um, if if any state legislation requires them to offer reimbursement parity, they they are looking at that. And that, those were their initial objections that in many cases, the provider didn't have the overhead and therefore the reimbursement rate should not be the same as a provider that actually had a brick and mortar office. So I think that you know payers are still going to have to look at the reimbursement rate, but if legislation pushes them in one direction, then what you will find is that payers will wrap much more policy around the delivery of that service than they would have if they're allowed to make a distinction or differential of brick and mortar versus satellite facility. Policy in terms of pre-qualifying patients for telehealth and steps like that? Right. Pre-qualifying the patient, making sure that there is at, at least a face-to-face -face visit either on a 30-day cycle or a 60-day cycle, the number of telehealth visits that can be provided, whether or not telehealth can be provided by certain specialties or specialties at all, whether they're going to revise it to confine it to PCPs and chronic care services. So they'll begin to to develop medical policy around the delivery of telehealth going forward. Yeah, payers just have a lot of different tools in their toolkit as to how they can uh, you know, manage utilization of telehealth is what it sounds like. They do. Does telehealth offer the promise of potential major disruption with payers getting directly into the provider market more through a telehealth play? Well, I think that you've seen payers within the last couple of years acquiring certain PCP offices or acquiring different offices in various states, almost mm -hmm. reverting back to a staff model or a pseudo staff yeah. model. I don't think that payers are really interested in getting into the staff model or the hybrid staff model of, say, what the Kaiser Foundation used to be or Kaiser Permanente used to be. I do think that they want more of a partnership role with PCPs and that really working more with risk-bearing entities allows them that that partnership role that they don't mm -hmm. have with a fee-for-service model. And obviously telehealth and telehealth services plays into that. But I don't think that they're looking to establish a staff model, HMO or a staff model payer relationship. Even though they might be able to do that a lot easier now with a telehealth. Well, they can, but if you've ever tried to run a staff model HMO, I can tell you that for lack of a better word, it is like herding cats. So it, it, there are a lot of challenges to administering that. There's also a, a, almost a firewall that you have to put up between the provider and the payer to assure that the services that are being delivered aren't clinically being directed by the payer that are medically appropriate and being provided by the provider. When you start to cross over, it can get a little dicey on both sides. Yeah, that makes sense. 
So what else is keeping the CEOs of large payers up at night and any other big changes that you see coming this year? For the most part, I don't think that we're going to see any massive changes within healthcare itself or or any drastic moves by the Biden administration in 2021. For 2022, I think that we probably want a close attention to what the Biden administration may be doing with the negotiation of Medicare drug prices or allowing drug importation or the potential for offshore production of critical medical supplies. And does the production of medical supplies offshore be a security issue for the United States going forward? So payers will be looking at things that may potentially impact them negatively. I think that of everything that we've talked about or everything that I've just mentioned, so one of the other issues that may be keeping payers up at night as well is offshore production of critical medical equipment and supplies and pharmaceuticals and how they match that might impact the existing contracts that they have with suppliers and whether or not that will increase unit cost or whether it will decrease. And I, I think that's still a significant unknown. And because of that, it has a potential to be a disruptor going forward, uh, not only for the payers, but also for the provider. The risk of any legislation coming through in 2021 is pretty moderate. And I think that gives the payers and the various payer associations enough time to really craft very specific responses to whatever the, the Biden administration may be looking to do going forward. So a lot of conversations are going to be had going back and forth regarding this, and payers will be very active in those conversations in trying to potentially mitigate any potential risks to the organizations going forward. The biggest one that payers will look at negatively is the potential for the negotiation of Medicare drug prices and how that will impact their existing contracts and any rebates that they, they've currently negotiated into those contracts. And whether it ultimately it'll be more expensive for them or costly for them. So it sounds like 2021 is fairly steady as she goes for the large payers in the U.S. Thank you, Frank, for joining us today. Uh, thanks so much for listening. For more insights and analysis about healthcare private equity investments and today's changing healthcare and life sciences private equity transactions landscape, check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Science News blog at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. For even more on healthcare dealmaking for McDermott, Register for our virtual HPE Miami conference held March 9th through 12th. We'll discuss the healthcare private equity trends and strategies you need to know for the year ahead. Register at mwe.com slash HPE Miami 2021. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.